We'll open up your Bible to Mark chapter 15. I feel like this morning we're reaching the summit. We've been on a climb for some years now through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we're reaching the top, we're reaching the summit. We are arriving at the blazing center of Christianity. We're going to be talking about the cross of Christ. The death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ is the central event in the universe. The cross of Jesus Christ was planned from before the foundation of the world. The cross of Jesus Christ is the hope of the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is building the platform so that we would come to understand the glory of the cross. All of our lives are shaped by the event of the cross. All of heaven's praises for all eternity. We will be singing of the glories of the cross. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. If you want to understand Christianity, it's not good to start with the morals or the ethics that we live by, but rather to start with the cross of Christ. It's the pulsating center of Christianity. Really, it's the reason why we gather every week. It's the reason why so many of us show up on Sunday morning filled with joy. It's the reason why some of us have been trying to tell our neighbors about the cross. Glorious. The reason why missionaries will cross cultures and learn new languages is because they want to tell people about the cross. The cross has so transformed us. The cross is the dividing line in human history. Humanity can be divided into two groups. Those who understand the wisdom of the cross and those who see it as folly. It shapes everything about us. One of the things I think that I I knew but came to appreciate all the more this week in my study was that really, literally, every aspect of Christianity flows outward from the cross. It truly is the heartbeat of Christianity. The way you are to love one another, patterned after the cross. The way you are to humble yourself and serve others, Philippians 2, patterned after the cross. Husbands, how are you to love your wives? As Christ loved the church. What's the content of Christian preaching? We preach Christ crucified. We are to live motivated by what? By the fact that God has so loved us perfectly that He sent His Son to lay His life down on the cross. It shapes everything. It ought to shape the way we think about the world. It becomes the lens through which we evaluate everything. The cross of Christ. It's supposed to be our boast. It's supposed to be on our mind. Constantly, it's supposed to be remembered. We are supposed to walk in the way of the cross. We are supposed to take up our crosses. Isn't it interesting to think that the most important event of your life happened long before you were born? The most important event in human history is the cross. And the most important event that defines you, church, is the cross. That everything we think about and all the things we're living for ought to be defined and categorized by The cross, center of the universe, the climax of God's redemptive story, 
the expression, the fullest expression of the heart of God for sinners, the subject of heaven's praises for all eternity. It's all the cross. God, forgive us if we move the cross off to the side and make it less central in our lives, in our churches, and in our preaching, and in our conversation. I have no trouble saying this very forcefully this morning, that the cross ought to be a burning, burning passion in your bones. You got this this message that has been given to us, this event that's been passed down to us that absolutely transforms everything about us, this ought to be the defining feature of our lives that we love the cross. We are always thinking deeply about the cross. We meditate on the cross. We, in a sense, obsess over this thing so that it defines everything about us. We ought to take major interest in the cross, meditating on it, dwelling on it, pondering it, rejoicing it, turning it over and around in our minds, evaluating it from all the different angles, staring at it until it refreshes us, staring at it until it stuns us again as it should. Or as John Stott says, whether we like it or not, we're all involved in the cross. Our sins put them there. We ought to think of the cross, ponder the cross, rejoice in the cross, and let the cross become that which shapes the rest of our lives. If there's anything you're passionate about, I know you got passions in life. And pursuits that you're chasing after and careers that you're working for, and these are all fine and good, but I hope that Grace Rancho is filled with a bunch of people whose major driving and consuming passion is that they would know the Christ of the cross. Because you cannot know God rightly unless you know God in how He's revealed Himself in Christ crucified. That is our God. There is no right understanding of Him outside of the cross. So if we say we are going to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength as Jesus taught us to, part of the meditation must be the cross of Christ. wonder how often you're thinking about the cross. I wonder if it's a daily meditation to you to think about what happened there at the cross. I wonder if you let the cross define your life. I wonder if you let the cross shape your service, your own self-perception. This is what we as Christians need to be working for and laboring for, that in our own hearts and lives we would be shaped by the cross. That's what the subject is this morning, what the sermon's going to be all about. What we're going to do after the sermon is we're going to be doing something that Christians have been doing for centuries, and that is we're going to participate in the elements this morning. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper, which was God's way of giving us a meal that would help us stand at the foot of the cross and remember what God has done for us in Christ. And so all of this you can count as kind of a leading up to taking these elements together, remembering what God has done. We're there in Mark chapter 15. We're going to work through the text. We're going to work through verses 16 to 41. And as we stare at this, my prayer is twofold. One, that the church would be stunned afresh at Christ's work on the cross. And number two, that those of you who are not yet Christians would stare at the cross with us 
that as you see what Jesus is doing here, God would grant you faith to believe that what Christ did there can be your own salvation. I'm going to read the whole text from 16 to 41. We're going to divide it up into three parts. Let's start at verse 16. All along as I read, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple robe, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also with there were also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. Long passage, we're going to break that up into three sections. And our first heading is this, that Jesus was rejected by men. We're going to use this text to take a long, hard look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing I want us to see, the text makes crystal clear, is that Jesus was rejected by men. 
If you take this section in isolation from the rest of the book of Mark, it might not shock you very much because you see as early as chapter 3 that the religious leaders begin opposing him and scheming against him and trying to figure out how they can get rid of them. But when you consider the life of Jesus and all that he did and all the good that he did and even the fact that all around the world Jesus has worshipers gathering this very morning singing his praises, isn't it shocking that his end was one of such utter rejection? From the very beginning of his ministry, he was immensely popular. Crowds followed him wherever he went. He did nothing but good to people. He taught them the way of God. He taught them the very truths of God. He told them what God requires of man. He told them that if they want to receive eternal life, they can repent and they can believe and they can receive the full forgiveness of sins. He also did very practical things for people. He healed people who were sick. He got rid of their diseases. Some people were oppressed by demons. And Jesus came in and cast them out. Even fed the thousands more than once. The people were gathering. They were hungry. They needed something to eat. And disciples weren't sure what to do. And Jesus would say, let's, let's feed them. He was doing good to people. Wherever He went, always doing good. Feeding and healing and teaching. It says in chapter 6, when He's feeding them, that His heart was filled with compassion. For those who were hungry, he, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no one really caring for him. Jesus' heart was filled with love. It was filled with compassion. From the moment that he began his ministry all the way to the very end, all he had ever done was loved people. Isn't it striking then that here he is at the very end being abandoned and rejected by everyone? Consider some of the other religions of the world and their founders. Confucius? Died in his 70s. Respected and revered by his disciples. Gautama the Buddha. Died in his 80s. Celebrated by those who loved and trusted him. Surrounded by his disciples. Muhammad. Died in his 60s. His head being cradled by one of his favorite wives. Socrates, the great Greek philosopher was made to drink hemlock. And all his disciples around him were pleading with him with tears not to do it. Don't do it. There he took it and he died. Jesus did more good, taught more wisely, taught more truthfully than any of these men. And here we are reading about his end. Isn't it shocking? Why is it that he came to this end this way? That all who are around and described here, this is what Mark is getting at, they hate Him. They want nothing to do with Him. They've all abandoned Him. In fact, if, you, if, you go, if we go back and we kind of look through all this, the main point is not the physical agony. You know, we've talked about all the different things that's going on. If you look at verse 15, there's Pilate saying that Jesus should be scourged. It's so brief, isn't it? It just mentions it. He's scourged. It has... No information or detail about the several leather bla- braids that would have had bits of you know, glass and bone and stone tied to the end and that they would have whipped him to the brink of death, that the whips would have been so brutal it would have torn open his skin. They probably tied him to a post. This is what they would do in the scourgings. Often those whippings would rip open their bones. They would even get so deep that they would touch the skin. Mark doesn't include any of this detail. You look at verse 17, it says they clothed them in a purple cloak. 
an imitation of something a king would wear. They threw it on him and they began mocking him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. We're not told the details of the agony that this would have hurt, how this would have hurt. Some scholars think that the plant they used had thorns that could grow up to 12 inches long. That they put this around to make him be kind of a mock Caesar with that leafy throne or leafy uh, crown. Instead of the leaves, there were long, sharp thorns that they shoved on his head. They would have ripped through the scalp and scraped the bone. It doesn't give us these details. They're not the point. Verse 19, it says that the guards were striking him on his head with a reed. You can imagine a uh, three-foot bamboo reed. It says that they were doing this repeatedly. The verb indicates that they just hit him once. That they were just whacking him again and again on the head. It doesn't tell us how this might have given him a concussion or, or fractured his cheekbones or given him a... A crack of the skull in various places, perhaps on his temple, a tender part of your head. It gets down to verse 24. It talks about they crucified him. Isn't it amazing how brief the mention is? It's just a few words. They crucified him. He's just like he's a news reporter, just throwing in these details. He doesn't go into detail about the long nails that would have been pounded through his hands to the cross beams. He doesn't go into the details of the painful agony that the long spike would have given his bones as they shattered through the top of his feet and pinned him to the cross. doesn't have any detail about the difficulty of breathing that he would have felt there. That he would have been having to heave and try to lift himself up by pulling and tugging on those nails just to get another breath. That he would have died not by bleeding out, but by asphyxiation. Doesn't tell us how this stuff felt to Jesus. We know the agony was horrendous and that it was probably barbarians who invented this mode of torture that was eventually adopted by Rome as a way to put down and threaten any insurrectionists to say, you never want to mess with us or this will happen. The agonies of the physical pain are not the point. In fact, I think if you read it more closely, you see that there's something else that Mark is doing in describing what's happening. He's showing that in this moment, Jesus is rejected by everyone. Go back to verse 16. The soldiers led him away. This would have been the soldiers that had originally arrested him. It could be up to 500, some say. They led him away to the palace and the governor's headquarters. It's around where Pilate was. They called together the whole battalion. It's as if they're saying, hey, everyone, get a load of this. This guy thinks he's the king of the Jews. They bring him all around and they begin mocking him. They dress him up. Matthew includes that they give him a reed to hold on to that's a kind of mock scepter. He has a mock crown and a, and a robe that's all just meant to mock him and deride him. They're jeering at him. This is to show the utter rejection of him. He came to his people and they hate him. They're saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. Spitting on him. Verse 19 says they're kneeling down to him, falsely worshiping, bowing down. Oh, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. Everyone's rejecting him. You see there first it goes into detail about the soldiers rejecting him. 
utterly. But then you look ahead at verse 29. It's not just the soldiers who are rejecting him. It says, and those who passed by derided him. Mark wants you to know it wasn't just these these brutal military soldiers who are doing the rejecting. It's also just ordinary people just happen to be walking by and they all just throw their insults at him. Just, just throw them at him, just mocking him as well. They want to deride him. They want to get in on the fun. Those ordinary passerbys deride him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. A rumor had been put out there that Jesus had been saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. All these people in the crowds, even the passerbys had heard that. And now they're mocking him for something he never said. Soldiers rejected him. The passerbys are rejecting him. You look forward to verse 31. You see again the chief priests. Verse 31. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another. These are the people who have been conspiring, so we're not all that surprised by the fact that they're now turning completely on him. But here they are, Mark describes what they're saying. He saved others, he cannot save himself. More like will not. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. As if that would be the sign that would draw their repentance and faith. He's being mocked by soldiers. He's being mocked by ordinary passerbys. The religious leaders mock him too. Everyone is reviling him. And as if it couldn't get any worse, look at verse 32, the very end. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We've all heard the story of the thief on the cross putting his faith in Christ in his last moments. But prior to that, even he was mocking Jesus. Isn't it incredible that these low-life criminals being killed for their own crimes feel morally superior enough over Jesus that they can mock Him as they suffer alongside Him and He dies alongside Him. They want to belittle Him. I hope you see what, what the, the theological point that Mark is making here. The theological point is not merely that Jesus body suffered in a great way the point that mark is making is that when jesus came and gave himself to these people in his teaching with his love with his compassion everybody rejected him everybody rejected him and this is all coming off the heels of chapter 14 And what did we learn in chapter 14? That judas betrayed him and the disciples abandoned him and peter denied him three times At this point, as Jesus is being nailed to the cross, could there be anyone who is more lonely than He is? He is dying a reject. All alone. During the difficult COVID months as the disease was roaring through, Our nation, our world, some of us heard the heart-wrenching stories of loved ones in the hospital room struggling to breathe and fighting for their lives and no one allowed to go be with them. Heartbreaking. Jesus is dying all alone. 
And no one is there with him. No one to hold his hand. No one to sing a hymn with him. No one to remind him of the promises of God. He is utterly alone. And the point that Mark is making is the same point that John makes in John chapter 1. That Jesus, though He was the eternal Word of God, He was the Word with God, He was was the Word who was God, who entered into the world. And He says in chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Mark is highlighting the depths of human depravity. That's what's happening here. How horrible is sin. That the most loving being in all the universe would come into the world and do the most loving acts of grace and mercy and kindness. And that humanity would with one voice rise up against Him and say, No, we don't want you. Leave us. And it is not enough to dismiss Him. It's not enough to ignore Him. No, humanity wants to kill Him. Not even to kill Him. They want to shame Him. They want to nail Him to a cross and torture Him. The depths of human sin. And the variety of ways that we sinners can sin against God. God would come into the world and we would have nothing to do with Him. And many of us would go, well, no, I would never do anything like that. That would not be me. I've not done anything like that. I don't sin in those ways. James chapter 2, verse 10, corrects us, if that's the way we're thinking. James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails at one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor. Huh. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? So James is saying that if you commit one sin, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. You're guilty of all of these things. What's going on? The hinge, the connecting point of James's argument is this. For he who said this law also said this law. In other words, the fundamental core of the disgusting nature of sin is not necessarily the sin itself. It's the fact of who you're sinning against. And what we're seeing here is that all humanity has rejected God, has hated God, is anti-God. And we might say, well, we've not done those particular sins. But James would have us be reminded that although the specifics of those sins might not be ours, the crime that we've committed is just as heinous as theirs. We have been anti-God, haven't we? We have rejected Him. We have wanted to live our own way. We didn't want a Lord to rule over us. We didn't want His Word to guide us. We didn't want a king. We wanted to be autonomous on our own. Make our own decisions. Live for our own passions. Live for our own desires. 
But what James says and what Mark is demonstrating is that we are all guilty of the same sins of being against God. If you have a hard time believing that, talk to the other Christians in this room. And they will be the first to admit, yes, my sins were against God. And though I didn't take the bamboo stick out and whack Jesus across the head repeatedly, I was equally against Him. Every choice I made for myself was anti-Christ. Every time I pursued my sins and my passions was anti-Christ. Every time I gave in to my temptations, it was anti-Christ. And though I am not there at the cross nailing in those nails into His hands, I am guilty of being anti-Christ. The same crimes that these men committed, I have also committed. I am a sinner. Sin takes us here. We think so lightly of sin, don't we? I mean, some of us talk about sin the same way we talk about spelling a word wrong. Like, oops, made a mistake. We're missing a freeway exit. Oh, get around and do it another way. No big deal. It's all going to be okay. We, we say that we sin. Oh, we, I made a mistake. It was a poor choice. I'll do better next time. What Mark is trying to show us is that where does sin lead us? What is the germ of, of sin? What is the seed? If the seed grows, what, it, what does it turn into? The seed is we are anti-God. And if it grows, that we become murderers just like He is. Sorry, not, not He is. Like these people are. Sin. Treason against our Creator on full display here in the text. Wonder, if you're not a Christian, what you think about your own sin. I wonder if you think your sin is serious or not. And I wonder if maybe some of the problems that are stemming from, or that are, are in your life are stemming from the fact that you don't really think your sin is that big a deal. How will it go for you if all throughout your life you always minimize sin and never see it for what it really is, that it's anti-God, anti-Christ, that it's wicked just as the sin here we see in this text is wicked. Jesus was rejected by men. Every category of person presented to us Rejects him. But even as horrible as that is, and the agony of the pain that he experienced was, we're not yet to the depth of the suffering of Christ. Which leads to our second point. That Jesus was cursed by God. Jesus was cursed by God. What's happening here at the human level is merely the backdrop for it's happening at the spiritual level. There's more than meets the eye here on these pages before us. There's more than just physical suffering happening here. If all that has happened here is what we can read about on the page, then Jesus is no different from the hundreds of others who were crucified in the first century. You remember back to 1436. Turn with me one page backwards in your Bible and look at verse 36 of chapter 14. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying the night before He's arrested. He's agonizing over this 
future cross. But what he mentions is not the physical pain of what he's about to experience. He mentions something else. Verse 36 says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Ah, the the cup. What is that? You remember when we talked about the cup, we're not talking about the physical suffering of the nails and the thorns, those things. We're not even talking about the mocking and the jeering that the people around him would do. What we're talking about, what the cup is, all throughout the Old Testament, and described even now throughout the New Testament, the cup is the full fury of the wrath of God. That's what he was afraid of. That's what was troubling him so deeply. And he was praying that God would remove the cup. And so what is happening here on the cross is more than just physical agony. What's actually happening is as we read these words, we are reading of the moments that Jesus is drinking fully the cup of the wrath of God. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 33, the sixth hour had come. There was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour for three hours, the sky goes dark. This is not just that some clouds moved ahead and blocked out the sun for a little bit. This is a supernatural darkness. There are instances where we talk about the presence of God in various parts of the Bible, and it talks about the presence of God being a place of light. You know, you've probably heard the text, you know, God dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, the, the, the light of God's countenance shine upon you, those kinds of texts. But we sometimes forget that there's also portions of the Old Testament especially that describe the coming judgment and the presence of God to judge in gloomy darkness terms, not not terms of light. In other words, what's happening here is a supernatural darkness where God is showing up in judgment. God is coming down to that cross not to bless His Son, but to curse Him goes dark. Jesus is dangling on a tree. Any Jew would have known that the book of Deuteronomy teaches that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. That's why the Jews were scandalized by a Messiah being crucified? No way. Can't happen. It can't be that the Messiah who's supposed to rule forever is cursed by God. No Impossibility. But here, what's happening is the presence of God's judgment is descending upon the land. Darkness falls. What's going on? This is the moment where Jesus is experiencing the full weight of the fury of God's curse against sin. This is the moment. These hours, these three hours are the concentrated time when God's wrath against all the sins of all God's people from every age is now being concentrated on Jesus and poured out on Him. Jesus is experiencing something far worse than nails and thorns and mocking He is experiencing the curse of Almighty God against sin on Himself. Jesus on the cross is drinking the cup. 
It's what Isaiah prophesied, isn't it? Chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. He laid on that cross the iniquity of us all. As the darkness descends. And as the cross is held up and as Jesus is dying. The Lord God is heaping upon him. All the iniquities of all God's people. From every age, right there on the cross. And God is judging Jesus. Verse 34. The ninth hour, after three hours of this agony, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemaktani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first verse of Psalm 22. If you want to be stunned this afternoon, go read Psalm 22. You might be mistaken to think it's actually from the New Testament because of how vivid its description of Christ's death is, although it was written hundreds of years before it even happened. Jesus knew that Psalm 22 was His own destiny. And as He's dying there, He uses the first verse of that psalm to do two things. One is even in his dying agony, he is asserting the trust of his father, my God, my God. He's still saying, it's my God, you are my father. And yet he is recognizing also in the same phrase that God has forsaken him. God has abandoned him. God is cursing him. God is treating him as if he had committed all the sins of all God's people from all time. There's a real sense in which Jesus, as he's being treated as a sinner, is experiencing the terrors of hell itself. There will come a day that, coming here in the future, when all who reject Jesus Christ will be forsaken by God for all eternity. They will be cast out of His presence. That is, His presence to bless. They will be contained in the presence of God to judge. Hell isn't the absence of God. It's the presence of God's judgment forever. There they will experience the just wrath of God as they are plunged into the fiery darkness of eternal despair. Here in this moment, Jesus Himself is being plunged into this hellish terror. He's experiencing the wrath of God for our sins and the hell that we deserved 
there on the cross. Some people think it's after he died, he goes to the grave, and there in the grave he experiences. No, he is a living man in the flesh experiencing the full fury of the wrath of God. All God's wrath against the sins of his people are being poured out on Jesus. God is not being like his father in that moment. God is being like his enemy in that moment and punishing his own son. Jesus is treated as the sinner. Verses 35 and 36, some people think he's calling for Elijah. He said the words in Aramaic, and so people didn't quite understand what he was saying. Calling Elijah. They run and they get him a drink. They try to have him drink it. Let's see whether Elijah's going to come and take him down. He's... Last words are so incredible, people are scrambling, not quite sure what to do. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry. You know from the Gospel of John that that loud cry was telestai in Greek. In English, it is finished. It is finished. He cries out, it is finished. And it says, he breathed his last. Son of God, eternal, glorious Creator, actually died. He died. And the reason he said that it was finished was because in those hours on the cross, he drank fully all the wrath that God the Father had against the sins of his people. All of God's wrath against the sins of His people was put on Christ. In other words, it is finished means there is no more wrath that God has to pour out against the sins of His people. There will be wrath for the sins of the people that are not trusting in Christ that they will experience in hell. But for all the sins of God's people, Jesus has taken on that wrath Himself and drank it all to the dregs and finished it completely and there is no more wrath left to face. This is an incredible reality. In other words, church, the moment you feel condemnation, you ought to remind yourself that any feelings of condemnation are not from God. Because there is no more condemnation. Why? Because there's no more wrath over your head. Because Jesus took it all in your place. In the moment that you feel like God is punishing you for something you've done, you got to remember the no, He's not, because all the punishment has already been put on Jesus. He disciplines us because He's a good Father. But He will never condemn you. He will never punish you. And listen, this also means He will never abandon you. Why? He abandoned Jesus. He'll never abandon you. All the sins of all uh, of all our lives... All our past sins, all our present sins, all our future sins have been collected like a big, giant, filthy, disgusting burden. They were thrown there on that cross and they were punished there. God cannot, He would be unjust if He did, punish you for sins that already have been paid for and judged on the cross. To the degree that, look at what happens in verse 38. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is this interesting detail here? You want to really go deep and study what's going on here, go read Hebrews 9. Go read Hebrews 9 and study this. The writer of Hebrews goes into depth about the meaning of this. I'll simply say this. That in the temple, 
all throughout Israel's history, the temple was the place where you went to worship God, right? This is where you go to meet God and to worship God and to give your sacrifices. All this was done at the temple. But there was a room within the temple called the Holy of Holies. Could any ordinary people go in there? No. Why? Because it was understood that this is where the presence of God was dwelling. The holy presence of God. And it was taught that God is so holy, so righteous, so pure, so good, that if a sinner enters into His presence, that that sinner would immediately be consumed by the holiness of God. So only one person could go in, only once a year. High priests, after the right cleansing rituals and sacrificial rituals, they had to be clean. They had to go in with much care. And they would go in and they'd do it there, what they did in there, only very infrequently. It was off limits to anyone else. As if to say continually to all the Jews throughout all the ages, you're filthy, God is holy, and you got to understand that you can't just come into the presence of God without a mediator, without a sacrifice. If in your sin, there is no access you have to God in and of yourself. The curtain stood as an ever-present reminder that there is a gap between sinners and a holy God. And then, here at the cross, that curtain is ripped in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom indicating God reaching down to earth. God making it happen. It wasn't a human event. It wasn't human hands trying to rip this thing up. And when God ripped open the curtain, what was He saying? He's saying that the access that you can have to Me is not through cleansing. It's not through ritual. It's not through religion. It is through the blood of My own Son. Because I poured out all My wrath on Him, And all of my judgment is there at the cross. You who come through Christ come without any guilt, without any sin. And therefore, you do not need to be concerned about how filthy you are. You have already been cleansed. You're forgiven. So come. It's, It's incredible to think that we can now come purely into the very presence of God, not because we ourselves are pure, but we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's what the cross does. God is not waiting for you to clean yourself up so you can come into His presence. Some of us are living this way. Like we're trying to become good enough, then God will hear our prayers. If I did a little better on my devotions this week, God will be more likely to hear my prayers. God will be a little more you know, good to me if I read my Bible more. I was a little more faithful. I didn't struggle so much this week. What the torn curtain is indicating is that the sins have already been taken care of. The door is swung wide open and that anyone has full and complete access to Him if they come through Jesus Christ. Don't think of God as this old man behind this thick door, locked And only willing to entertain those who deserve it. It's not even that God has unlocked the door and cracked it open a little bit. And if you really want to, you can come to His presence. It's as if in the cross, God is saying, Look, I have come. I have come to you. I have swung open the door. I've broken it off His hinges. There is no more door. 
The curtain's gone. And the message that God is shouting to all the world is, Come, sinners, come. Come through Christ's blood. Come through the cross. Come looking to the cross and see your sins are forgiven and you are welcome in my presence. God loves to save sinners. God loves to offer forgiveness to those who know they need it. God's message to the world that He has given in His Word, that He gives us to preach, that He gives us to share to our friends and neighbors, is Christ crucified means God wants you to come to Him through Christ. God's opened up the gate. As some have said, the gates of paradise have been swung wide. Come to Him through the cross. We can't come any other way. But when we come through the blood of Christ, recognizing all our sins have been paid for, we're completely forgiven, there's no more wrath for us to face, that we have been invited by the God of the universe to come, then we can come and believe. I read a story a few years ago that, that stuck with me. It kind of illustrates this. In, in 1982, is a true story, a man by the name of Kevin Tunnell got drunk at a New Year's Eve party on his way home, uh, he was driving himself. He thought he would be able to control the car, uh, but he lost control, lost control of the vehicle, swerved and killed an 18-year-old girl named Susan Herzog. He did uh, some years of probation. He had to do some community service. But Susan's parents did not think it was enough. And so they wanted to sue him. So they brought him to court. They sued him for $1.5 million dollars. Kevin was in despair. He had no idea how he was going to pay this debt. And then surprisingly, the parents thought of something else and asked to settle out of court. And they settled out of court for some surprising number. Uh, the number was exactly $936, but there was one bizarre condition. The condition that the parents came up with was that Kevin had to pay the $936 this way. By sending a check made out to Susan Herzog every Friday for the next 18 years. Every Friday, Kevin would have to pull out his checkbook. He'd have to write the name of the girl he killed. He'd write $1 and he would mail it to the parents every single week for the next 18 years a year for every year that Susan had been alive. Kevin said, sounds good. Much better than trying to pay $1.5 million. He thought he had been let off easy. Then, he began to do it every week. He realized the agony of writing the name of the girl he killed every week. The burden of guilt was becoming so much that he couldn't hardly bear it. He tried contacting the parents and getting out of it. He tried writing checks all at once and giving to them all, to the parents all in one bundle. They wouldn't take it. Seven years went by. Every week he was writing the name of the girl he killed. He was going crazy. He would be haunted by the girl's name. He began missing a few payments, hoping that the parents would forget and he could just get out of it. But every time he missed a payment, they'd take him back to court and require that he continue writing the checks. As he stood before the judge several years into this, he, with tears in his eyes, admitted that every time he wrote the name on the check, 
He was agonizing. He was dying inside. He was haunted with guilt and shame. The name Susan was unbearable to him. He couldn't sleep at night. He had guilt over his head. Every day he couldn't escape the lingering sense of failure and regret at what he'd done and there was nothing he could do to get out of it. And every week he was reminded of it. There are some people, maybe in this room right now, who are living like that. Constantly reminded of their failures and their shame and their guilt. And you have no way to overcome the guilt of the things you've done in the past. You have no way to move forward. And it's as if every week you're reminded that you've failed and you're not good enough. And that your sins were serious and you've hurt people. And you're trying to pay a debt every week as if God is just not ever going to be happy with you. He's always going to be requiring you to just pay up, pay up, that God wants us to never forget the ways we've sinned against Him. He wants us to never feel free. In fact, some of us think that God wants us to walk around feeling guilty all the time so that we take our sins seriously. Listen, the cross is the place where we go and we remember that no, He paid the debt in full. I owe nothing. And the curtain has been torn. And He invites me in. And He has granted me full access to His love and grace and mercy for all eternity. And I am not meant to live in the constant shadow of condemnation. I am to live boldly free. Boldly confident of His love. Assured that the Father loves me, the Son loves me, and that I've been purified, and I've been forgiven, and I've been declared righteous. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Bold I can approach the Father now. This is what happened at the cross. This is the glory of the cross. This is why the curtain was torn. You don't need to live in constant guilt haunted by your past sins and failures. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, namely death, because you violated the law, you deserve to die. The legal demands of death, all of this, Paul writes, has been set aside, nailing it to the cross. Church, look at the cross and see all your sins there. Look at the cross and see your fine was paid. Look at the cross and see your sins were judged there. That there is literally no more wrath for you to face at all. You don't have to face any more wrath. Ever. None. For all eternity. And what God has for you is love and mercy. He is for you. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. Why? Christ was condemned. Not you. You're set free. It is not the will of God that you walk around constantly under the shadow of condemnation and guilt. It is the will of God that you come to Him boldly, confident of sins forgiven, confident that He hears you. You have full, complete access to His throne room. There, the curtain has been torn from top to bottom. Jesus was cursed by God, so you will never be. Abandoned, so you will never be. Punished for sins, so you will never be. And what God has for you is eternal, undying, everlasting love. 
that is perfect. That ought to put a spring in our step as we walk out the door this afternoon, doesn't it? It is incredible that God has done this for us. It shapes everything. It becomes the, the, the shape of our lives, really. And it brings us upward to love and joy and worship. There's one last thing I want you guys to see. After we've looked at the rejection of Jesus by the men, we've seen that Jesus is cursed by God. I want to see this last thing, that Jesus was recognized by one. Verse 39. He was recognized by one. And when the centurion who stood facing him, he's standing right there in front of the cross, face to face with the dying Savior, The centurion who likely was there overseeing the soldiers who are beating him up just some verses earlier. This Roman military leader in charge of many who has seen crucifixions aplenty, who has seen how they die. He's probably heard those on the cross that he's overseen before screaming in agony, cursing their tormentors, watching them writhe in pain and agony. This is a hardened man. He's been here before. And yet it says that he stands facing the cross as he stands facing Jesus dying there. It says he saw that in this way he breathed his last. In other words, crying out, it is finished. Crying out for the forgiveness of his enemies. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The way he died was so utterly different that he knew this man is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. He is the divine Son of God who has come. He is the Lamb of God who takes upon Himself the sins of the world. He recognized Him. It became so clear to the centurion that this is my only hope. And I believe that right there in that moment, this man who was a hardened military leader looks to the cross of the dying Savior, recognizes who He truly is, and in that moment, an invisible swap takes place that all the sins that this centurion had ever committed are then transferred to that cross. And they're paid for right there. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus is then transferred to Him. And in the look of faith, that man is justified and saved forever. The one who had just moments before had been taking part in the ridicule and the mocking and overseeing it. I find this to be incredibly hopeful for those of you who consider yourselves to be too far gone, too embroiled in sin, too hardened to find grace at the foot of the cross. It is a reminder that if you want faith in Christ, some of you Christians go, I don't know if you have enough faith. And some of you, admittedly, you're like, I'm not a believer, but man, I wish I could have faith. You know what you do? You look at the cross. You stare at the cross. You do what the centurion did. You look at him. You watch him die. You understand what the meaning is. You understand who you are in light of that. And you don't look there without eyes of faith and remain unchanged. When you stare at the cross, it begins to bolster up in you faith. And if you're not saved, I say keep staring at it until it makes sense to you. That you understand what it means. Christ there made payment for your sins. So the Holy God can receive you into His presence and you can be counted as having no sins against you. Look to the cross. Virgin put it this way. It says the cross, which is the object of faith, 
the object of faith. It's that which we look to uh, in faith. The cross, which is the object of faith, is also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the cause of faith. You see that? It is also the cause of faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. When you look at the cross, it causes faith and love in your own heart to spring forward. He goes on, sit down and watch the dying Savior till faith springs up spontaneously in your heart. There's no place like Calvary for creating confidence. The air of that sacred hill brings health to the trembling faith. Many a watcher there has said, while I view thee wounded, grieving, breathless on that cursed tree, Lord, I feel my heart believing that thou sufferest thus for me. Look at the cross. Let me just say as a personal note, this week I got to study the cross several days without interruption. I can testify that it is true. Stare at the cross. It is glorious. Look at it. Turn it over. Be mesmerized by it. Don't give it a passing glance and move on to new things. Stare at what God has done in the cross. And then let it spur in your own heart love. Faith, worship, obedience. 